Welcome to tape number 15 of the series, What We Catholics Believe. This tape is about death, judgment, hell and heaven. In the Little Catechism, these are called the four last things, because between them, they cover the final destiny of each and every one of us. When I was at school, we were encouraged to think about these four last things as we were going to sleep at night. I used to think that's why they were called the last things, because you thought about them last thing at night. But of course I was wrong. It's just our last end is covered in them. I'll say a few words about each one, but I'll also talk a little about purgatory, because I expect most of us are going to spend some time there. So first of all, death. Ever since original sin brought death into the world, every human being knows that they are going to die. But it's only too easy to be distracted from that knowledge. The world presses in with so many busy affairs and things that call our attention that from day to day we hardly give it a thought. In fact, we all tend to live as if we were going to live on this world forever. Of course, that's not true. As St. Bernard of Clairvaux told us, the most certain thing in life is death. And the most uncertain, the day and the hour of our death. And that's what we find in the Old Testament, and especially in the Psalms. Lots of reminders that we need to be prepared all the time because we do not know the day and the hour of our death. And Jesus gave us similar warnings in many of his parables, particularly the one about the bridegroom who came along very late and found that some of his attendants were not ready for him. And at the end of telling the story, he said, Watch you therefore, because you know not the day nor the hour. And we find that in the 25th chapter of St. Matthew. So out of kindness, we should teach our children to be prepared, to try and be always prepared all through their lives, so they're never caught unprepared, and by that I mean in a state of serious sin, not ready to meet their maker and their judgment. Now obviously you don't want to worry them, far from that. And for them, death is going to be so far away. I always say to mine, you know, perhaps when you're 90 or perhaps even 100, as long as you're careful crossing the road and you don't smoke, then the day will come. It's that far away, they're not going to worry. But it does teach them to remember all through their lives that that day will come and that they must be ready for it. Teach them to pray for a happy death. The little prayer to the Holy Family that children in Catholic schools always learned to say before they went home at night <coughs> is probably one of the best. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, I give you my heart and my soul. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, assist me in my last agony. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, may I breathe forth my soul in peace with you. Amen. It's a nice prayer to say too, if you're ever looking after anyone who's dying. Say it aloud with them. Now what is death? Well, technically it's just the separation 
of our soul from our body. And as the preface for the dead, in the Mass for the Souls of the Dead says, our lives are changed, but not taken away. Our souls are immortal, so we're still alive. But life is certainly changed. Our body and our soul are separate. So what happens then? Well, once they're separated, the body receives care, a requiem mass, and is buried or cremated. But the soul, the immortal part of you, which is really your identity, the part that's really you, appears immediately before God for our individual or particular judgment. As St. Paul wrote in his letter to the Hebrews, it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. So that's when we appear before God and when we receive his judgment on our lives. And apparently we see ourselves then as he sees us. Not as we do now, because we tend to look on ourselves rather kindly, making excuses and giving ourselves the benefit of the doubt. But when we are being judged, we shall see clearly. And that means we will understand exactly how God sees us. And we will recognize the perfect justice of his decisions. Because this is when God exercises his infinite justice. The time for mercy is past. That's why it's important we throw ourselves on God's mercy while we're still alive. That we repent of our sins before death. That we avail ourselves of the sacrament of penance and die prepared by the last sacraments. God's mercy is there for anybody, no matter what sin they've committed, no matter how often they've fallen back into sin, as long as they are truly sorry, and they do mean to try and do better, and they turn to him for forgiveness. The forgiveness is there, his mercy is always there, during our lifetime. And that's why it's very important to avail ourselves of his mercy and his sacraments while we're still here on earth. This individual or particular judgment, each one of us privately before God, is not to be confused with the general judgment. That will come at the end of the world, when everybody will be judged, a public judgment, when our bodies will be united with our souls again. And when we will all witness the justice of God, an opportunity to correct any misunderstandings we've had, <clears throat> anything that deceived us, an opportunity to put right perhaps our over-hasty judgment of others, everything we brought out into the open. Our blessed Lord himself described it like this. The Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with all his angels and then he will render to every man according to his works. And that's in St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. But the judgment that comes immediately on our death is our individual, private judgment. 
And St. John of the Cross tells us, we should be judged on our love. That's what it will be about. Not even on what we've achieved, but on the amount of love with which we worked. I remember seeing Mother Angelica, who has set up this marvellous television network, not only just going right across America, but across most of the world now, saying, when I die, Jesus isn't going to say to me, oh, Mother, you did a wonderful job down there. He knows quite well that he did most of it. I was just his instrument. All he will be concerned about is, did I work with love? Did I do it lovingly? Love for him, love for my neighbour. That's what he will be judging. Love of God and love of neighbour. We've been told by Jesus himself, we want to go to heaven, we must feed the hungry, clothe the naked, all the other works of mercy. And also, and this is obviously very important to our Lord, we must forgive others if we expect him to forgive us. That's going to be the measure of our forgiveness. So if we've sinned, and we all have, we need to be absolutely forgiving to other people. You remember the parable he told about the two stewards, one of whom was called before his master. He owed him a tremendous debt. He was threatened with prison, and he begged for mercy. And the master, being moved, forgave him his debt. Then on his way out of the house, he met one of his colleagues who owed him just a little bit. And he grabbed him by the throat and said, you pay me what you owe me or I shall have you thrown into prison and your wife and your family. And when the fellow servants passed this on to the master, he was very angry. He said, if I can forgive you that enormous debt, you should be able to forgive one of your colleagues. Now that's quite a serious story. And of course, we do find this written into the Our Father. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We can't say that if we're not going to be forgiving. And that clause is so important that it's the one Jesus repeated again after he'd finished teaching that prayer to the apostles. So we must be forgiving, which isn't always easy. But when we think it will mean perhaps our forgiveness, then we will do it. In fact, Late Father Harden used to say, we should be grateful to those who treat us badly because they give us an opportunity for forgiveness and that's going to help us at our judgment and we might need all the help we can get. At our individual particular judgment, we will learn which of only two final destinations awaits us, either heaven or hell. Now, obviously, you're going to use your own judgment when you're discussing hell with your children, depending on their age and how sensitive they are. But I think it's necessary, if you're going to teach about it at all, and perhaps teach further about it when they're older, that we all understand it as well as we can ourselves. It's fashionable to talk as if hell doesn't exist. Or if it does exist, it's empty. Now that really is just wishful thinking. There is no evidence 
in Scripture anywhere for that. On the contrary, the Old Testament is full of warnings about hell. And when Jesus came on earth, he didn't correct that teaching, like he did correct some of the Old Testament teaching. In fact, he spoke about hell more often than he spoke about heaven. He gave many warnings himself, out of love for us, to help to protect us, to save us from it. He warned us in his direct teaching. For instance, in Matthew 25, we get, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. And in Matthew 10, Fear not them that can kill the body, but fear those who can destroy both body and soul in hell. We also get parables, like the one about the rich man, Dives, and the poor man, Lazarus, illustrating that the rich man who was so selfish did not go to Abraham's bosom, which was the nearest people get to heaven before the redemption. But Lazarus, the poor beggar who put up with his suffering so patiently, did. And the when Dives was in hell, and it's made quite clear that's where he is, and he begged for help, there was no help forthcoming. That is given in great detail in Luke 16. In his second letter to the Thessalonians, St. Paul talks about hell and describes it as eternal punishment. That means it isn't just for a while. Eternal punishment. And the Apocalypse talks about the bottomless pit. And this has been the church teaching ever since. Mind you, the church also teaches that if we go to hell, it is our own doing. We can't go there by accident or a mistake. And certainly God doesn't force us there. But he has given us free will and intelligence. He treats us as the responsible people we are. And he will not force us against our will to love him in heaven if we haven't loved him on earth. If we've freely chosen not to love God, to resist his teaching consistently all the time in important matters, we would not be happy in heaven. So the only other permanent alternative is hell. But make sure your youngsters understand that God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. He doesn't want any soul lost. He loves each individual soul in a special, individual way. Any soul that's lost cannot be replaced by the others. The others are all different. So he doesn't want us to be lost. He gives us every opportunity to repent, every grace, every help he can to get to heaven and no matter how we've lived on earth repentance will always save us even last minute repentance on our deathbed if we receive that grace will save us from hell and make it possible eventually to get to heaven <coughs> because of this threat we make us lead careful lives ourselves but also it teaches us that the greatest charity there is is to help others avoid hell. By example, by teaching, by taking every opportunity for people to get to heaven. 
And as I say, this isn't fashionable at the moment, and it's a pity it's not. It means that souls are lost, and that souls that need help are not getting the help they need. The idea that nobody ever goes to hell is called universalism, universal salvation. It's an old heresy, and it's been condemned by the church. But it does crop up. See, anyone who dies in a state of mortal sin, as we call it, the serious sin that kills the sanctifying grace, supernatural life in our souls, makes life in heaven impossible. You need that grace to, to, to be able to live and enjoy heaven. You have to go to hell. Another way of explaining it is to say, we make ourselves incapable of God and heaven if we have chosen self so totally as to exclude God completely and never repented. We shall get what we've chosen. We shall get ourselves and not God. And his justice just ratifies our decision. Now that's a very gloomy picture. And that's something which I hope, I trust, is rare. Remembering that to do that kind of thing, you've got to know what you're doing. And you've got to be pretty consistent in it. If we haven't been totally selfish, if God is not completely excluded from our lives, or if the love of other people is not completely missing, we can still be saved, yet so as by fire, as St. Paul wrote to the Corinthians. That is, by purgatory. And that's a comfort. I think purgatory is a very comforting doctrine, as well as true one. Now, while you're hesitating what you're going to teach about hell, I think it doesn't hurt to remember that our blessed lady, when she appeared at Fatima, showed the children who saw her, the three young children, a vision of hell and the souls in torment there. Not to frighten them. None of them thought they were going to hell. I don't think little children do. I can remember learning about hell as a six-year-old and never thinking for a moment that I would offend God like that. But realising that if anyone does, it's very sad and that we must pray for people in that situation. And that's why Our Lady showed it to the children at Fatima. It was to show them how important it is to pray for sinners and that they must tell the whole world, all the Catholics in the world, to pray for sinners, that they should repent and avoid hell. And of course the children took it extremely seriously. Little Jacinta, who was six, started doing the most rigorous penances, wearing ropes around their waist so that they cut into the skin, giving up their food. Penances all aimed at saving sinners from hell. Now we haven't seen a vision of hell, but we should take their message very seriously and pray and offer penances to save sinners from hell. It's the most charitable thing you can do. Teach your children to pray for sinners. It will help the sinners. That's important. And it will remind them of this important fact of life, that sinners go to hell. And they won't be tempted to fall into the self-indulgence of wishful thinking, oh, I can't go to hell, it doesn't matter. So the way to teach it, I think, is how Our Lady taught it at Fatima. Teach them to pray for sinners. Now, death separates our souls and bodies, 
But it doesn't change our souls. They're the essential part of us. We are still the same person after death, which means we know and love the same things. We have the same ideas and feelings. So if we're inclined to be a bit hot-tempered, or a little bit selfish, or like showing off or telling lies, we will still, after death, have those characteristics. They will not disappear by magic. Now, they will not do in heaven. In heaven, everybody is as perfect as they can be. That's why it's so nice up there for all of us. And we will realise that when we appear before God. And we suddenly see all our faults and our tendencies to sin. And we'll appreciate very well, I don't deserve to be with God, not the way I am. Cardinal John Henry Newman wrote a beautiful poem, The Dream of Trances, set to music by Sir Edward Elgar, where he described a soul on the point of death, through death, appearing before God. And this soul, when he appears before God and suddenly sees himself in a true light, and it's a very dramatic part in the music, he sings out loudly, Take me away! He can't bear to be near the goodness of God with his petty jealousies, faults, so obvious to him. That's how we shall feel. I want to be made perfect. And of course, that's what God will let us do, become perfect. We're not bad enough for hell. So we will go to purgatory. There we are cleansed and prepared for heaven. Now this has been a belief right from the Old Testament. The book of Maccabees, we find Judas Maccabeus sending money to the temple for sacrifices to be offered for his soldiers who died in battle. Saying, <clears throat> it's a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead that they will be loosed from their sins. Again, we don't find Jesus correcting this Old Testament belief. And there it was in the early church. If you go to the catacombs, where the um, Christians, the first Christians, first four centuries of the church were buried, who lived in Rome, <clears throat> you will find carved into the walls, pray for the soul of, and then the name of the person buried there. So we've always prayed for people when they've died. We've realised that our friends, much as we love them, or our relations, are not 100% perfect. That means they're not ready for heaven and this close friendship with God. And they should most likely be in purgatory. So, out of kindness, we pray for them. This teaching was being emphasised at the Council of Trent because it was called into question by Luther and the Protestants. And that name lists out that prayers, especially masses and rosaries and alms giving to, uh, char to charities will help the souls in purgatory. They cannot help themselves. When you're on earth, you can help yourself. You can do all sorts of things to improve yourself. Penance, prayer. But once you're in purgatory, you're going to stay as you are. The fires of purgatory will cleanse you. But people on earth, your friends on earth, can help you, should help you. It's more than a charity, actually. It's a duty. Particularly for friends and relatives who die. That's why it's very sad to go to a funeral 
with a good person who's died, and I'm saying they're good, I'm sure they are, are canonized on the spot. So-and-so's in heaven now. Well, maybe, maybe not. But the sad part is that all those friends and relatives who could have gone on praying for them will go home saying, oh, they're in heaven, they're okay. And the poor soul may be desperately needing prayers in purgatory. They are holy souls. They're good people. They're resigned to God's will. They're looking forward to heaven. They're repentant. But they're suffering. In fact, the saints tell us the suffering in purgatory is worse than any suffering we have on earth. And that can be very bad suffering. It consists of separation from God after seeing him. And that is the suffering they feel. Now the time they spend in purgatory is very difficult to assess. We don't know what time is like in the next world. But we do know that our prayers are never wasted. Prayers are so precious to God that you can't waste them. He would never waste them. If we're praying hard away for someone who actually has already gone to heaven because they weren't perhaps so bad or perhaps because they had a lot of prayers said, doesn't matter. Our prayers will help somebody else who needs them. And of course, for all its suffering, there's a great consolation in purgatory. You are sure of heaven. There's only one door, and that door leads to heaven. Eternal, perfect bliss. Because in heaven, we know God directly. That's the happiness of heaven. Not through ideas like we do now, but directly as he is. We shall see him face to face. We will know him as he knows us. And that direct knowledge is what's given to us by our sanctifying grace or supernatural life. So we shall have great joy. Think about it. The happy times you spend on earth, if you look back, are the times you spent with those who are very dear to you, that you've spent closely, conversation, laughing, sharing jokes, whatever. That leads to happiness. But of course nothing compared with the happiness of being with God closely. And without, as I say, no ideas between you, just direct, perfect knowledge. So it's worth making the efforts to get to heaven. We won't get there just by convincing ourselves we're good enough for heaven but by accepting in faith all that Christ taught. And that means by obeying his commandments and repenting of our sins. St. Aloysius Ligori told us the people in heaven are there because they prayed. So that's an important element of getting to heaven. Daily prayer. It will be presumptuous to assume you're going to heaven, no matter how you behave, even if you neglect your prayers and treat everybody very badly. In fact, we should never be cocky about it. Even the great St. Paul, who led such a saintly life after his conversion, wrote in one of his letters that he trembled, lest, having preached to others, he himself should become a castaway. Now, if he could think like that, it's an example for us. He also said we're rather like athletes in training. 
They endure terrible hardships. You know, they, they get up first thing in the morning, go for these long runs. They eat all the right foods and avoid drinking and parties just so they can win a temporary crown. But we're working towards an everlasting reward. So it's worth going through a great many hardships. It's worth every effort. Because we've been told the eye hasn't seen, nor the ear heard, what wonderful things God has prepared for those who love him. And also, we've been told the sorrows of this world are not to be compared with the joys to come. Teach your children to store up treasure in heaven, as our Lord called it, uh, to earn graces by prayer and good works, so they'd have a happier, more marvellous eternity. Everyone in heaven is as happy as possible. But some people have a bigger capacity for happiness. People who have stored up a treasure, people who have earned more graces. Also, try and instill an understanding that this life is temporary. We have no lasting home here. It's the next life that's eternal. Really, this is more like a bridge between our creation and our true home in heaven. It doesn't hurt to teach them to think on the four last things, or at least to think about heaven when they're going to sleep. The book of Ecclesiastes says if we think on the four last things regularly, it will keep us from sin. And we'll find it easier to reach heaven. And hear those beautiful words. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And then at the last final public judgment, to be the ones among the ones, that Jesus says, come ye blessed of my Father, possess you the kingdom prepared for you. Perhaps we should get into the habit of saying, every day or several times a day, Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Because that's what this life is all about. Now we're going to pray to Our Lady. And it's the fourth glorious mystery of the Rosary. The Assumption of Our Lady into Heaven. Now for this I'm not going to give you scriptural quotations. God is not described in the New Testament. But it's been tradition of the church from the very beginning that Our Lady stayed on earth after our Lord's ascension into heaven. We know that she was praying with the apostles before the Holy, Bo uh, Holy Spirit came down. And she probably helped to discuss difficult decisions with them and stayed in Jerusalem while they stayed in Jerusalem. When the persecution started and they scattered so that they knew some apostles would be still living to spread the faith, she must have travelled with St. John, who tradition tells us went to Ephesus. Indeed, archaeologists have found the house now they think was her house. You can visit it if you go to Ephesus, which is in Turkey now. And there Our Lady would have lived for several years. And while she lived there, the apostles would visit her on their journeys. And particularly the four evangelists. This was how St. Luke, for instance, heard the stories of the infancy of Christ by visiting Our Lady in Ephesus and listening to them. Tradition also says that towards the end of her life, 
she went to Jerusalem with St. John to visit the holy places for the last time. And that several of the apostles were there, most of the apostles were there. It, obviously they'd arranged to meet there. And the tradition also says that she fell asleep in the upper room where so many important events had happened. Fell asleep or died. Perhaps she didn't die. We don't know. But she fell asleep in the upper room and she was buried in Jerusalem. The next day, St. Thomas, who hadn't been there before, who kept missing things, it seems to me, arrived. He had to come all the way from India. He had set up his apostolate ten miles outside Madras, where they still have the remnants of it. And of course, when he arrived and found that Our Lady had died, just the day before, been buried, he was heartbroken not to have seen her. And he asked if he could look at the tomb, and they took him to the tomb, and her body wasn't there. That night, when he was preparing for bed, he was puzzling about that. What's happened, he thought. Now, the story goes that while he slept, he saw a vision of the angels coming to the tomb and taking Our Lady and carrying her up to heaven. She didn't rise up to heaven like Jesus did. He was God. He could rise up to heaven. She's a human being. She was carried up by the angels. And as she was carried up, she looked down and saw St. Thomas watching and she smiled at him and loosened the girdle of her dress and dropped it down so that when he woke up in the morning he was holding the girdle so he thought it wasn't a dream that was real and when he showed it to the apostles they agreed yes that's what she was wearing of course he took it back with Madrastin and it's been lost but this has been pictured in churches all for centuries the artist Rembrandt drew a beautiful painting, Our Lady of the Girdle, he called it, showing this happening. But it was defined by the church in 1950. And so we believe, whether all the part tradition I've been telling you is true or not, we do believe that Mary was carried up to heaven, body and soul. And that when we get to heaven, and I hope we all will, we shall see her and Jesus, body and soul, in heaven. So that's the story we think about while we are saying the ten Hail Marys, our Father and glory be. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed
Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. O my Jesus, forgive us our sins, and save us from the fires of hell. Lead all souls to heaven, especially those in most need of thy mercy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you very much for listening to this tape with me. I hope you'll join me for the next tape, which is the last one in the album. And that's called, What We Catholics Believe About Ecumenism. May God bless you all.